can go ahead and be seated. For you guys who don't know me, uh, my name is Clayton Fells. I get to serve as the associate pastor here at City Church, and it's something I get to do with joy and humility, and every once in a while, I get to come up here and preach, and so I always want to get out of the way, and I pray, and I've been praying, that ultimately you leave here seeing Jesus clearly. And so with that, I want to open with a story. It's actually about a book I read a few years ago. There's a guy named David Brooks who's been a columnist for the New York Times for a long time. I've actually got to uh, meet David, and he wasn't a Christian uh, until recently. Uh, So when he wrote this book, he was a very religious man, but he was not a Jesus follower. However, he, as someone who studied social science and was uh, attuned to current events, wanted to find out how character played in society. So a few years ago, he wrote a book called The Road to Character. And I actually remember reading this book when we lived in Tennessee. And the key to this book, and I don't want to give the whole thing away. It's a great book if if you're interested in a summer read, um, is that he really contrasts two visions. He said, too often, and again, talking more about Western society, too often we can focus on what he would refer to as resume virtues. Resume virtues, which would be simply, look, we like to look at people as successful or unsuccessful based off of their resume, their accolades, based off of job title, how much money they make, maybe what school they graduated from, what family lineage they came from, in fact, what city or where they live in a city. He said, we too often put most of our emphasis on that and not enough on what he calls eulogy virtues which is inner self-virtues, things like compassion and kindness and humility and love and wisdom. He said, it's interesting when you look at these two things, it's just funny how things play out. And, and, And I want to note this, and he says this, and I want to make sure I'm very clear here. There is nothing wrong with having a good resume. Nothing. There's nothing wrong with going to a great academic institution. In fact, If I would have known about him, I would have loved to go there. In fact, one day, maybe my kids will go there. There is nothing wrong with any of that at all. There is nothing wrong with making money or having a nice house or having a nice car. In fact, if you look at at what the Word of God says, that it is the love of money, the pursuit, making money an idol that's the root of all evil. And so I just want to be very clear there. But to go back to Brooks's point on how we weigh these, there's a couple of things. We pick leaders like this. We pick leaders like this. And let me tell you, give, me, give you two examples outside the church world. If you look at British prime ministers over the last 100 years, there have been many, over half of them went to two schools. Two. That's it. Now, there are a bunch of others that went to some other schools, but the majority went to two private boarding schools, which are great schools. Nothing wrong with them. If we look at our British cousins and go, you know, that's the British elite. We Americans, man, we, we threw that system away in 1776. See you later. We're America. I want to caution us because four out of the last six U.S. presidents went to Ivy League schools. Again, nothing wrong with Ivy League schools. But we choose leaders. One, Bill Clinton didn't. He went to Georgetown. He was also a Rhodes Scholar. And our current president, Joe Biden, went to the University of Delaware. The rest went to Ivy League schools back to race. So we do this. So Brooks's point is we put an emphasis on this. 
And the thing is, those things are not bad, but when we look at our priorities and what we pursue, we need to be cautious to measure success if we're only measuring success on resume virtues and not inner character. That's his point. He says it this way. I'm going to read a quote, and then the end of the quote we're going to put on the screen. He says, you have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. Again, he's not looking at a Christian perspective here. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. Success often leads to greatest failure, which is pride. Failure often leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. And then this is what he says. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. That's David Brooks writing this long before he knew Jesus. Long from looking at this from a Christian perspective, just looking at it in what's best for society. The cool thing is, I feel like society is there, and yet what David Brooks looked at, the Christian life, walks right with that. The character matters. Character matters. And so what I want to look at today is how we weigh both people and our priorities. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy doing that. But as you do this, as we walk through the scripture, I want you to be mindful. Just be real honest with your heart today. How do you weigh what you prioritize? I'm serious. Again, nothing wrong with success. But do you pursue that as the ultimate thing, as the resume builder? Are you impressed by that? Or are you impressed by someone's integrity and character? Which do you pursue in your life? This morning, as we look at this, we're wrapping up 2 Timothy. And to give you some context here, Paul is at the end of his life. We've said that every time someone stood on the stage and, and referenced these verses, that Paul is writing this last pastoral epistle to his mentee, his brother in Christ, Timothy, and he is at the end of his life. He is in the dungeon. He's in the prison in Rome. He knows what is awaiting. And the last time I preached a couple weeks ago, we looked at how Paul would say in this section of um, chapter 4 that he has been poured out as a drink offering. He has lived his life sacrificially. He has run the race. He's finished it well. And now he is awaiting the crown of righteousness, the crown that makes him right, which is Jesus. And so he is reminding Timothy of all this in this epistle, and this section today is these last personal instructions to him. And I want to remind us, Paul is a great man. He was a faithful man, but in the end, Paul was a man. He is not the point of the story. Okay? So, 2 Timothy 4, it'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bible or one of the journals, flip over there. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 9, and I'm going to read and stop, read and stop, because I want to break this down. There's a lot of stuff in here. All right, starting in verse 9, do your best to come to me soon, okay? For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychus has sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Torres, also the books, and above all, the parchment. So what I want to look at this is start here. If he's writing Timothy, he is instructing Timothy to do this. So he starts with, do your best. Telling Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Soon. He tells him, 
hey, Timothy, now, right now, don't wait. When you receive this, come. I'm at the end. I don't have a lot of time left. Come. But not only is he to come, and he's to come soon. There's a reason he needs to come soon. And it's not just because Paul is at the end, but because it is a long journey. See, Timothy is the pastor, the leader at the church at Ephesus, and and the distance he would have to travel from where he was at to where Paul is at could take anywhere to four to six months. It's a trip. It's not like he's hopping on Delta and flying over in a couple hours. That's not the journey that Timothy would have to make. In fact, Paul has made similar journeys, and, and with the time of year this is, Paul also knows that the shipping lanes, because he's going to have to go through land and sea, could also ship down for the winter. And so, the end of the day, he's telling Timothy, come on, man, come on now, right? I get it's going to be sacrifice, it's going to be dangerous, you're going to have to travel through a lot, and not only that, Timothy, listen, not only is there a personal cost to you, there's a cost to your church because you're leaving it, right? If it's taking four to six months just to get there, it could take four to six months to get back, he's going to probably be there, like you're talking about a year, at least, So he's saying, hey, I get it, but do your best, do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. There's a sense of urgency you can hear Paul say this with. But then, because he's reminding Timothy of this, he says another name. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Let's stop there. Who is this guy? Because I'll be honest. Too often, I can read a section of Scripture like this and look at the names and go, random guy Paul mentions, doesn't really matter. What does he have to do with me? Let's go on. He's just mentioning this guy's name. But like me and like you, he has a story. He has a story. And so what we will see here is that he would be what I would refer to him as Mr. Temporary. That's who Demas is. Listen, we know throughout Scripture, that he is a Jesus follower. In Philemon, Paul describes him as a fellow worker. He is welcomed in by Paul. He is mentioned again, excuse me, again. So we know this is who this guy is. We know he walked with Paul. In the past, he's been with Paul, right? He's been with Paul here, but he didn't stay here. He didn't stay. He left. He left. And Paul tells us, why did he leave? Because he's in love with this present world. In fact, Paul would go on further right there and says, he's deserted me. That word deserted could actually be translated almost to forsaken. He's gone. He's out. He's he's not sticking around. If I'm Paul, I'm sitting in that space, and I'm in a hard spot, and my buddy, Demas, says, see ya. I'm not, I'm not doing this. And so he goes. He goes. We don't give a, a, a reason other than it's because he is in love with this present world. We don't know what details that is, but we know he's not sticking around. He's not digging in. And so I can easily go back to what Paul says in chapter 2 here in verses 20 and 21 when he talks about honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels. Actually, when I preached that section a month ago, I actually put two different bowls up here, and I kind of showed you what that would look like, a really good bowl and a dog bowl. And what we're looking at here is Paul's language here is like, man, this guy was this beautiful crystal bowl, and now he's not choosing to stick around. He's going to pursue that. 
the ugliness, right? And not only do we know he's leaving, we know where he's going. There's a healthy church in Thessalonica. So again, it's not saying that Demas is leaving the faith, but it does say he's leaving Paul. And when I did some research on this, there's a John Calvin quote that was really good, and and this is what Calvin said about this, this guy. He said, he could not stay with Paul without involving himself in many troubles and vexations and a real risk to his life. Look, what he's saying is, there was a cost to this, to sticking around. And he, Demas, was exposed to many reproaches. He was laid open to many insults. He was forced to give up caring for his own concerns. And in the circumstances, he was overcome by the dislike for the cross. Basically, hey, listen, Demas saw the bad and was like, mm, uh-uh, nope. And so, as Calvin would say then, he decided to look to his own interests. His own interests. At the end of the day, I don't think Demas had any intention to quit in Christianity, to quit following Jesus. But, at the end of the day, this, and he's not a villain, this man chose the present day, the present age, over the cross. That's why he's mentioned here. Which reminds us easily this. As Paul knew, and as Demas really knew, following Christ and living in community costs. Following Christ and living in community costs. It's not always easy, right? Like, come to Jesus who gives you rest. Yes. But I'll go and tell you, there's a cost. There's a cost. And here's the thing. You and I are not immune to the comfort and the lure of of, of life. Right? I mean, we're constantly being bombarded with ads and things that make your life better, make your life easier. Right? If you just get this, gosh, my life will be so much better. I said this last time I preached. It's like the person that's like, man, if I can just get a house and get out of this apartment, then that will make me happy. And they get the house, and it for a minute does, until they see their friend's house with the bonus room. And then they go, gosh, if I just had a house with a bonus room, then I'd be happy. And then they get that, but that doesn't satisfy ultimately because that can't. It's not what they're created for. It's not what you and I are created for. Listen, the love of God and the love for this present age cannot coexist. Now, you notice I didn't say the love of people, right? But at the end of the day, it's idols or Jesus. And Demas made his choice. Jesus said it himself, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. And an honest reflection to all of us has to be, look, do we? Do we serve two masters? Again, this is church, and too often we're like, no, of course not. (laughs) But I'll be honest, I'll, I'll pick on myself for a minute. I can. Absolutely I can. When I start looking at, look, good questions to ask, where do I spend my money? Where do I spend my time? What are my priorities? Am I looking at the resume virtues? Listen, I'll I'll just be one moment of sinful transparency with you on me. When I got this job, right, I I, I take the job, now I'm going to be an associate pastor. I'm walking away as a director at a PR firm, leading a team, and I'm like, man, whew, the title's a little different now. Like when someone asked me, hey, what do you do? I used to be like, hey, I'm director of a PR firm, a college professor, I do this. I was an associate commissioner of a college athletic conference. Like, list the virtues of the resume. 
and there was some pride there. Now I can ask Billy how often people go, Pastor, man, that's a great profession, <laughs> right? And so honestly, I had to be real honest. It's like, man, like put that down. Like, why am I being so prideful over this? Like, yeah, I'm a pastor. I don't, I don't have that other title now that impresses the world. But you know what? That's okay. But I, again, that was something I had to transition. That was my own sinful heart. Listen, I love what John Piper says when he, comparing these two things, the world, this present age, and following Christ. He says, more people leave Christ, more people leave the church, more people leave ministry, and more people leave the hope of heaven out of love for the world than anything else. Anything else. Demas fell into this. That he fell into the warning in 1 John 2.15 when it talks about the love of the world is basically choking out his heart. And every heart loves something. And Paul's describing Demas' heart as loving the world more than sticking around in the hard times with Paul. Now he continues, says, Christians has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. These two guys here, he doesn't give a lot of details other than they're going, and what we know about them is they're also leaving, but their leaving is for a different reason. They're going to be on mission, not loving the world. But because he's mentioned these three together, he is reminding Timothy, going back to our original thing, do your best to come to me soon, because there's a void. Now, Paul does mention another guy here, the only one that's going to be with him in this moment, and that is Luke. Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Luke, what we know of him is we know that he is a physician, that he is the writer of Luke and Acts, which obviously Paul plays a huge part of, that he is a guy who sacrificially loves not only Paul, but ultimately Jesus. And I would describe um, Luke as simply this. Not only is he dependable, but he is loyal. I could call him loyal Luke. That's Luke. In fact, in Colossians 4.14, Paul greets him this way. He says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And Demas sent greetings. There's that other guy. But what a wonderful way to be referred to. Our dear friend Luke. I mean, gosh, man. When someone says that to you, like, and my dear friend. Fill in your name. What a great, joyful thing to have. That's what we know about Luke. We know he's loyal to Christ in the mission. I'm always reminded of, of the story of a guy named T.S. Mooney. And T.S. was someone most people have never heard of. In fact, he's not some big-name Christian author or, or, or pastor. But he was an impactful guy known in his church for being simply loyal. He was from Londonbury. And in 1925, this wee little man who was not articulate, not impressive, not someone that was going to stand on stage and preach the gospel, but he was loyal. He was loyal. And when he died, he died. I read that friends and pastors reflected on the impact he had for simply being loyal to the same body of Christ in his town for 61 years. What an impact he had for just 
staying put. Just staying put. I love the Tolkien quote from the Fellowships of the Rings when he says, you can trust us to stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you can keep it yourself. But you can't trust us to let you face trouble alone. Man, that's Luke. That's Luke. Luke had the loyalty factor with Paul. He's there. He's there. There is no, no evidence that Luke was some great strategic thinker or great speaker. He was obviously a pretty good writer. But his impact came from loyalty to Christ and loyalty to Paul. And man, I'm, I'm always reminded the fact that um, how encouraged Paul must have been because there was someone by him. In fact, I want to challenge you this week. If there's someone in your life that you can look at and go, man, that person is loyal, drop them a note. Drop them a note. Just to say thank you. Because there's something about that, knowing Paul wasn't alone, that, man, Luke was there beside him. Luke was there beside him. But not only does he say Luke alone is with me, he tells Timothy, hey, there's another guy I want you to get a hold of. I want you to actually bring him with you. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. So what's Mark's story? That's Luke's story. What's Mark's? So Mark's story is this. One, we know he's useful. He's a good vessel. But not only is he useful, his background is, look, Mark's the guy that's always been around the church. Okay? His mom's church in Jerusalem was, was, was the center of that era. He had known, I'm sure, the disciples. He had, he had known about Jesus from a young age. He had grown, he's the guy who grew up in church. Like praise, praise to God for guys like Mark. You know, Billy says this. I'll say this too. I hope my kids' testimony is as boring as anyone. Dad just loved Jesus. My mom loved Jesus. He worked at a church because he loved Jesus. And by gosh, we just learned to love Jesus. That's not like I was on drugs, I, I fell off the wagon, it was a horrible experience, and then Christ rescues me. Praise God for those stories. But I hope my kids are super boring. That's kind of Mark's background. He just kind of grew up in it. And yet we know that not only did he um, grow up in the church in Jerusalem, but he accompanied Paul on mission to Cyprus. And then in Acts 13, we see, though, that we see that he leaves Paul. He leaves him. He had grown up, he's gone, and now he leaves him to the point, by the way, that Paul and Barnabas, who kind of was the mentor for, for John Mark, have it out. They have a disagreement. They split. In fact, Paul's like, I don't want him to come. Listen, I want to say this. It's okay to have disagreements. It's okay. They had a disagreement. But God used that disagreement to have Mark go with Barnabas and learn there on mission. And then this disagreement eventually resolved because we see that he's imprisoned with Paul in Colossians 4. And he is mentioned in 1 Peter 5 as a fellow worker with Paul and Peter. Listen, Mark can be summed up as the guy that grew up in church, walked away from the mission, but eventually became the writer of the gospel. The point of Mark is this, that past failure or disagreements do not prevent your current usefulness. 
It doesn't. My, my, my friend, Brittany Thomas, who I used to work for, says the best, best way to be used is just to be useful, right? Be available. Mark was available. Honestly, he was available to the point now where he's a good vessel because Paul tells Timothy, bring him. Bring him here. Bring him here. So he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And Tosilius, I have sent to Ephesus. So who's this guy? Who's this guy? Well, what we know about his story is this. If Paul is calling Timothy to come from Ephesus, Paul, like a good guy, is not leaving Timothy alone. Number one, he needs someone to carry the letter. This guy has got a background in that. He's done it before. But he needs someone to stay and shepherd there if Timothy's going to create a void by coming. And so he sends him to Ephesus. Listen, good churches equip members. That's what they do. But they do this with godly leaders. They go back to David Brooks's point about character. Character. Listen, we need to always be, City Church, let's talk to us directly, not the big global church, but just us. We need to always be in a healthy enough place where if Billy has to step away, and I have to step away, or Jim has to step away, whoever that is, someone can fill the void. And we just keep on keeping on. Because at the end of the day, Christ is the head of the church, and we are to be good stewards of that. And so he sends, Paul sends him with the letters, and he says it this way in Colossians 4, that this guy is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant to the Lord. He's a good replacement. He's a good replacement for Timothy. Listen, God always uses his people to advance his mission. Always. And so he's using this brother to go advance the mission, to go fill the gap, fill the void in Ephesus. And then finally in this section, we see this. We see that Paul requests three things. Three things. Because he tells Timothy, come. And when you do, I want you to bring some stuff. He tells him to bring the cloak that he has left. He tells him to bring some books. And he tells him to bring, above all, the parchment. And what he is getting at is these are his necessities. Now, if I'm stuck in prison... In a cold dungeon in Rome, I don't have a clue what I would request. But this is what he requests. And it's interesting because, one, it is cold, it's winter, bring the cloak. I mean, let's, let's start there. He needs something that. So there's some usefulness to that. But he tells them, bring some books. Bring some reading. Bring some parchment. Again, we don't see what he does with this, but we see that this is what he's requesting Timothy to bring. But here's the thing we can see globally about this little section here, that Paul knew, Paul knew it was the influence and authority of Christ that fulfilled him, not great possessions. Not great possessions. These are not amazing possessions even back then. And they wouldn't be amazing possessions now. As much as I love to read and write and that kind of stuff, I mean, I I like those things. But these are not what people would think. But Paul didn't need everything. He needed these because he was fulfilled by Christ. He was fulfilled by Christ. And so I want to challenge us to simply ask the question, 
If you're in Paul's shoes, what are you requesting? If you're in Paul's shoes and you're at the end of your life and you're stuck in prison and you're cold and you're alone other than with one person and you're making the request, what are you requesting? What are you requesting? He then continues in verse 14. He tells Timothy, there's another guy. His name is Alexander. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be aware of him yourself, for he has strongly opposed our message. And at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He names a guy named Alexander. And what we obviously can see in this text is Alexander is not a good guy. He is not someone that is welcomed because he does great harm. He is warning Timothy, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for this guy. But here's what's interesting. Even though Alexander was the opposition, that he was maybe a wolf in sheep's clothing, he was a snake, he was dangerous, be aware, Timothy. Look how Paul says to deal with him. He says in verse 14, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be aware for him yourself, for he has strongly opposed our message, right? He is against the gospel. But at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. Paul's alone. But may it not be charged against them that Paul is saying, listen, there are going to be people in your life as a Jesus follower that will or could oppose you and oppose the gospel. And you need to be aware of that. Don't be ignorant. But he doesn't tell Timothy to take vengeance on him. He says, that's the Lord's job. It's not your job. It's not yours, Timothy. I didn't say go right my wrong with this guy. I just want you to know he's out there. It's hard when you're wronged. It's hard when someone wrongs you. When you feel like you've been betrayed. When someone hurts you, especially deeply. And I think the natural tendency for us is to want to go get revenge. I'll show them, right? It's why so many people want a strong man as a leader. But when you are wrong, how do you respond? How do you respond? Is your first inclination, listen, I'm going to go avenge that. I'm going to go right that wrong. It's my job. I'm in control. I'm going to go fight that battle. Or is your reaction like Paul? who has gone through more than any of us, is it, no, 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 no. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Listen, Paul knew he was confident he didn't have to fight that battle. He was confident Timothy didn't need to fight that battle. He could sit in the peace of a God who is just. The Lord will repay him. Listen, sometimes we, when we are wrong, need to slow down, take a step back, and just rest in the fact that God is with us, he sees the wrong, he is just, and that he, he in his 
glorious goodness will repay those. We don't have to fight that battle. In fact, I think a lot of people are exhausted because they're trying to fight those battles. And what Paul is reminding Timothy is, hey, be aware it's happening. and You can let go. You can let go. Not only does he say that, but he said not just that he was opposed, but he was deserted. He was deserted. He was by himself. Man, you can almost hear. Paul's lonely. Man, we live in a time where a lot of people are lonely. Like, he was by himself. He was by himself. And he tells Timothy again, may it not be charged against you. I can just think of Paul's journey as he's writing this, and I can think of when, when Paul was referred to as Saul, and he goes to that first martyr in the book of Acts to Stephen, when, when Stephen is stoned to death. And Paul's rooting it on. Kill him. Stone him. That'll show them. It's Jesus following people. Who do they think they are? And yet, Stephen cries out, not in vengeance, but giving his spirit to the Lord. Forgive them. Like, I just think of the impact that must, the little seed that that must have planted in Paul's heart, that when he becomes a Jesus follower, now that he's on the other side of that, he's so much mirroring that same posture and attitude that Stephen did. May it not be charged against them. Listen, I'm alone. It's not right. He doesn't say like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. He's just saying, here's the reality of the situation, and I can rest, Timothy, because here's the thing. I know God is just, because look at verse 17. Here's what he says. But the Lord stood by me. But the Lord stood by me. Not only did he stand by me, and he strengthened me. He strengthened me. There was no resentment, bitterness, things that easily say Paul could be justified on. Listen, his defense, his defense was, listen, I can let go because God's with me. It's literally, God is encouraging. God, Jesus is with me. Take courage, Paul. I'm with you. You're not alone. It may feel like you're alone. Everyone else has deserted you. And I'm here. I'm here. And so that bitterness and resentment that normally would bubble up can just go. I don't have to fight that battle anymore. Because he knows that leads to a bad area. Look at what Hebrews 12 says about resentment and bitterness. Hebrews 12, 12 through 15. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Ah, I can see Paul doing that right here in this section of, of 2 Timothy. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive, action, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. Paul knew his mission. He could rest in that. He knew that the point of all this, his suffering, all of it, was that he was being used by Jesus for a purpose. Christ was not only Paul's priority, he was his purpose. Go back to our text. 
but the Lord stood by me. Take courage, Paul, and strengthen me. Why? Why would he say that? So that through me the message, not to Paul's benefit, not because Paul would get out of prison, not because Paul would become some conquering hero of Rome. No, 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 no. Because, because of this. So that through me the message might be fully, not lacking, fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles may hear. So I was rescued from the lion's den. Paul knew that in the shadow of death of Rome, it was always about the gospel. It was always about the gospel. It was about God using him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Hey, Paul, you know why you're going through all this? Hey, number one, you're not alone. I'm going to be with you. But there's a purpose to it. Oh, Paul, there's a purpose to it. The gospel is going to advance. That you are the tool, the instrument that I'm advancing the gospel through. Paul, be encouraged by that. I love what Psalm 73, 26 says. It says, my flesh and my heart may fail. That's Paul. He's physically hurting. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my position. Paul knew, knew that in the lion's mouth of Rome, in the era of Nero, and by the way, just full transparency here, we like to compare too often in today's world. We're like, oh, that person's like Hitler or like the Nazis. And I'm like, eh, let's be cautious there. Because like, go look at Germany in the late 1930s and 40s. Nero is a proper comparison. He is not a good guy to say the least. And in this era where, where there's a fire in Rome and, and people have died and, and, and there's just upheaval, man, Nero's like, these Jesus people, they're like claiming Jesus is Lord. No, 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 no. I'm the emperor. I am Lord. I know what my people will be. I am the center of everything. And Paul marches into Rome and goes, nope, God's using me even in the prison, even in the um, court. Wherever I'm at, no, 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 he's using me to advance the gospel. And Nero, you can try to stomp out every Christian. In fact, Paul's going to die. Peter's going to die. And yet, the gospel continues. The gospel continues. It kept going. That's why Paul can rejoice not, not in his suffering. Not, I mean, excuse me, not for his suffering, but in his suffering. He can rejoice in that. That's what he talks about in Romans 5. Listen, I love Russell Moore's quote about this time. He says, we started on the wrong side of history. A Roman empire and a cross. Rome's dead and Jesus is fine. Paul knew that. He knew. You know, Friday, they, they, we, I think all, if not most, heard the news that Roe v. Wade was, was changed after a long time of precedent. And it's interesting, when I was doing research and, and, and praying and trying to uh, craft this, this sermon together, one of the things that the early church did in society that was very countercultural in Roman time was, not that Rome had really abortion, but what they would do is, if you had a child and you didn't want it, you could just discard it like garbage. These Jesus followers knew that that shouldn't be the case, so they often would then 
take in those babies, those children, and raise them and guide them. And, and it was just very countercultural to the Roman people. And it's just interesting that Paul is put to death. Peter is put to death. The Nero thinks he's winning, and in his winning, the gospel continues to spread because people are seeing what's happening. I want to close with this story because I think we can look at Romans' times and Paul's times and we go, that's back then. That's not what's happening in our time. And, and the truth is, that's, that's actually the complete opposite. It is happening in our time. It may not be happening in the West, but it is happening. In 2015, in 2015, there were 20 Egyptian Christians who were day laborers in Libya. And they were abducted by a group of Islamic terrorists from ISIL at the time. And these terrorists marched these Christians to a beach, made them put orange jumpsuits on. And they asked these gentlemen if they would refuse to denounce following Jesus. And these men didn't. In fact, I want to show you a picture, and I know this can be a little much, but I want you to really feel this. There are the guys. There they are. Knowing what's about to happen. I want you to close your eyes. Just for a second. Close your eyes. And imagine not that you're on that beach, but imagine your husband or your, or your wife is. Imagine your child is. Imagine your parents are. Imagine someone, the person you care about the most, is on that beach. And that cold silver blade is against their skin, and they know what's about to happen unless they denounce Jesus. This was a horrific incident. You can open your eyes. That's what these people faced. Not in, not in Rome, but in 2015. Unfortunately, these men, they lost their lives. They were killed. And it was, it was worldwide news. I remember this story. It was all over the globe how horrific this act was. And there was a guy named Martin Mosbach, who's a German writer, and he was like, gosh, this is horrible. You know what? I need to go, and I need to spend some time with these guys, their families. I need to spend time with their spouses or their kids or their mom or their dad or their friends, their community. I need to go back to Egypt, and I want to I hang out with these people. And I, I've got to figure out why in the world would these guys not denounce this guy Jesus to the point that they're going to have their heads cut. Like, what are they doing? What is up with this? And so he goes and he pursues this story. And as he interviews these families for this book, this is what they say. And I'm going to read it because I can't articulate it better than they say it. One of the dads of one of those guys say this. There was no mourning, no pity but instead I had pride and happiness. This was not seen as injustice or accident or that this incident should have not happened. No, 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 on the contrary. 
Mothers, widows, brothers, and fathers all spoke the same language. That this is, continue the dad's quote, that these paintings and these photographs showed that they were killing our family members. And yet, here's what he says, they were about to receive the royal crown of righteousness on their head. They were like priests who had been given their lives through this act of faith. There was really the presence of the supernatural in the lives of these very simple people who were not mystics at all. These were people with very simple theologies. But it was a real theology. Listen, he said, When I saw that my son died in the name of Jesus on his lips, I was very proud and I rejoiced. We only knew martyrdom from films. This is what he said. But martyrdom was reinduced to our society and it strengthened our faith because of these 20 martyrs lived among us. You know the crazy thing? This happened in 2015. These guys are killed. It's worldwide news. And I'm sure if you ask those terrorists, we'll show those Christians. We'll show them. You come here, done. And yet this story spreads just like Paul's story spread. And the gospel continued to march out. And now if you look, if you look, according to Open Doors, in Egypt, where they're from, the church is exploding with growth. That in the own community where these guys are from, one of the dads said that, man, where evil was carried out four years ago, when the result of persecution happened, man, there were an increasing number of Muslims leaving Islam and turning to Jesus. One of the daughters of these men said this, it is my biggest honor. I am proud that my father is on the pictures because at first it was hard to deal with and that's a fact that our father was martyred. But later, later as Paul knew, as Paul said that Christ strengthened him, he was with him, he said, take courage, Paul. I'm with you even in that moment. I'm using you for the gospel. This lady says this about her dad. Later, we felt comforted by God. In the moment they needed, God showed up. Listen, King Jesus puts heads back on and puts worlds back together and one day oh one day and I can't wait to meet these guys I can't wait to hear their story further listen I don't think any of us this morning are facing that but I do know whether you're watching online or you're in here that you may be facing something and it may feel like that you're probably not facing what Paul did Maybe your, your story is like Timothy and you need to, to come. Maybe you're being called. Maybe your story is like Demas. Man, and you've wrestled and too often you have gone and chosen the love of the world instead of the cross. And there's hope, hope for you in that. There's forgiveness. Grace abounds more. Listen, maybe your story is like Luke the loyal. Man, and you just need to just keep going. 
God is using you just to be an encouragement and loyal, and you're not going to get headlines, and you're not going to be asked to go to the conferences, but Manny just said, keep going. God is using you as a good vessel. Maybe your story's like Mark, and your past is, has been of church, but then you walked away, and, and now you've come back, and man, you want to dedicate your availability now. Or maybe you're like Christians or Titus or, or others who were went and they were going to be on mission. Listen, some of you need to connect with Joey Cox about going to the DR. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what it is. But like Paul, you have a story. And I have a story. And here's my final question to you this morning. How are you going to decide what to do with the time that you have been given? Paul knew his purpose. He knew his purpose because he knew Jesus. And what would it look like at City Church if we did what we talk about on our mission to facilitate a movement of disciples? How would that look like in our community? Listen, Paul's point in 2 Timothy is, hey, Timothy, listen, I'm leaving, but the gospel is moving forward, and he's going to use you. One day, there's going to be a group of people who live in North Atlanta, they're going to come together from a lot of different backgrounds, and he wants to use you too. Listen. That's Paul. That's Second Timothy. That those who profess that Jesus is Lord through the Holy Spirit, God uses them and allows the gospel to transform them so that their entire lives reflect the entire reality who they are, their priorities, and their personal. That's how Paul lived, and that's how we're called to live.